know, most presidents, they view allies as enhancing America's strength in the world. And that is something Donald Trump just doesn't believe. He, he believes that these allies make America weaker. So that's a fundamental disagreement uh, he's had with his previous, with his predecessors. And it will not be something that continues after January 20th. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Indy O'Frank, and I am joined today by my co-hosts Sam Coe and Megan Rutkai. The future of NATO may have reached a turning point. After four years of criticism from the Trump administration, it seemed possible that the U.S. would leave NATO under a second Trump term on a continuing path of American isolationism. However, the incoming Biden administration stands poised to change course, reasserting the U.S. as a leader of global cooperation and recommitting to the transatlantic relationship. As new global challenges raise questions about NATO's future role and direction, the Biden administration will need to work with the many, and at times divergent, perspectives of NATO member countries to reestablish U.S. leadership and to chart the future of NATO itself. To discuss the future of NATO, joining us today on the podcast is Professor James Goldgeier. Joining us today to discuss the future of NATO is Dr. James Goldgeier. Dr. Goldgeier is a senior visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute Center on the United States and Europe, and a professor of international relations at the School of International Service at American University, where he has also served as dean from 2011 to 2017. Professor Goldgeier has also held a number of public policy appointments, including director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs on the National Security Council staff. Professor Goldgeier has also authored four books on U.S. foreign policy, Russian affairs, and international relations. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Professor Goldgeier, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Could you briefly outline for our listeners what NATO is and when and why NATO was created? Well, NATO is a military alliance. It was formed in 1949, and at the time it included the United States, Canada, and 10 Western European democracies. So it started at 12. Uh, and it's grown today, it's 30, but but it started at 12. And it was a huge deal for the United States when it formed NATO because it was the first peacetime alliance in U.S. history. The, the American people had been very keen on following George Washington's words in his farewell address when he left office. He urged his countrymen and women not to join permanent alliances. And then uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, used the phrase entangling alliances. And, and by that, both of them meant this idea that the United States should just stay out of other people's business except to trade with them and shouldn't have permanent allies. And that really stuck in American history. In fact, in World War I, when Woodrow Wilson took the United States into World War I, it went in as an associated power because being an allied power was still this, you know, it was still anathema to Americans to think that they would be allied powers. And then, of course, World War II, the United States uh, did have uh, the Grand Alliance with the United Kingdom and, and the Soviet Union. And so but then after the war, the idea was with the Soviet threat to Western Europe that the United States and Canada and its West European friends should form an alliance. And NATO's first secretary general said the purpose of 
NATO quite simply was to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And, and I think that summarizes it well. We could talk about that more if you want. Um, and the key to, to NATO as an alliance is its Article 5, uh, which says that an armed attack on one or more of the NATO members uh, in the North Atlantic area would be treated as an attack on all. The idea is that if a member state gets attacked, everybody else should should join in. And the only time that's ever been called upon was after September 11th, the attacks of September 11th, the uh, America's European allies and Canada uh, joined in support of the United States to treat that attack on the U.S. as an attack on all. And you mentioned you know, the American people's, you know, almost reluctance to form these permanent, you know, potentially entangling alliances. Do you think that this aversion towards alliances had ebbed or changed before NATO was formed? Or do you think that NATO helped turn more Americans in favor of permanent alliances? How did NATO play into this American attitude towards alliances? Well, once, you know, because of the Cold War, I mean, once the United States was in this one. I mean, then it just basically formed alliances all over the world. And you had the United States becoming a global power and becoming engaged with the world in a way that it just had not been previously. Uh, you know, it really went from being apart from the world to being atop the world uh, in a very short period of time because of the impact of the Second World War and America's place in the world after. So, um, you know, and so the United States then um, had this worldwide system of alliances. Uh, NATO is the only one that looks like it does with with uh, with the secretary general and, and the effort to create uh, interoperable military forces. The alliances in Asia, for example, are are bilateral in nature, in nature, U.S., South Korea, U.S., Japan, U.S., Australia. These are, you know, these are very different than the than the NATO alliance, but uh, but definitely, yeah, Americans uh, with the Cold War, Americans got over their reluctance. Now that we're talking about the period near the end of the Cold War, for our younger uh, listeners, ourselves included, how did NATO's purpose change, and how did that mind shift of NATO change before and after the fall of the Berlin Wall? Yeah, so sorry for those of you that missed the fall of the wall. It was very exciting. And um, and then 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, which, you know, was was mind-boggling, especially for somebody like me. I had I had been trained in graduate school in the, in the late 1980s as a Soviet specialist. So, I, you know, I was studying the Soviet Union. I, my first academic job, I was hired to teach at Cornell University in 1991, I started January 91. I was I was hired into a line on uh, teaching to teach Soviet foreign policy, and then by the end of the year, the Soviet Union was gone, and I was in a political science department, and and that class moved to the history department. So, uh, you know, it was history, and the Cold War mission of of protecting Western Europe from a Soviet attack that that wasn't necessary anymore, and you know, NATO members could have said, job well done, let's disband, let's go home, we don't need to do this anymore. But the United States was really eager to uh, to continue to stay in Europe, felt that it was important for, for global security and U.S. security that the United States stay in Europe. And 
And the purpose of NATO has evolved considerably. It's been used to help promote democracy in Eastern Europe. It's done humanitarian relief uh, after the tsunami in Indonesia some years ago, after Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. Uh, it's done relief in Europe uh, this year uh, uh, due to COVID-19. It, it's delivered medical supplies. It's gone to war a couple times. It went to war with Serbia in 1990 to protect the population in Kosovo. It went to war in 2011 in Libya to protect the popul population in Benghazi. It's done the stabilization mission in Afghanistan, you know, that's been going on ever since uh, 2002, 2003. Uh, well, the U.S. attack was then, the, the stabilization mission came a little later, but but it's been going on, you know, now for about 15 years, this, that mission. It's done counter piracy in the Indian Ocean. It's done counter terrorism in the Mediterranean. So huge set of uh, different types of missions that NATO has been engaged in after it was formed for that one big mission of protecting against the Soviet Union. So you've mentioned that NATO has been involved in various different initiatives um, enduring over the several decades that NATO has been an alliance between these countries. Um, so during this long time that NATO has been in use by all these countries, what have been the major points of contention between NATO members throughout the group's history? Because I'm sure there have been some. Well, there have been some really low points um, among specific members. Certainly uh, the Suez crisis of 1956, when you had Britain and France supporting Israel in a war against Egypt uh, over, the, over the Suez Canal. The United States, uh, in fact, put pressure on Britain and France uh, to stop that war. And so uh, that break between the United States on the one hand and Britain and France on the other was a was tough, uh, certainly uh, for the British and French. And then in 2003, the Iraq War, uh, France and Germany, who are close allies of the United States, uh, opposed the decision by the United States to go to war in Iraq. So there have been those low points, but the the longest term, the long term issue that's been the contentious one from the 1950s to the present is what's known as burden sharing, and that is basically boils down to how much are the Europeans willing to spend on defense? And as we saw in the past few years, Donald Trump made the case that the Europeans needed to do more if they wanted the United States to continue to protect them. And, you know, he put it more bluntly and more crudely than previous presidents, but it's been an issue all along. And I, you know, I think it'll remain an issue even in a Biden administration. And given that Trump has brought up burden sharing, you know, perhaps more bluntly than previous presidents, has Donald Trump done anything, you know, has he taken concrete action to advance the issue of burden sharing beyond what previous administrations have done? Or is it mainly the rhetoric where he's, you know, departed from the you know, historical conflict? Yeah, it's really interesting about this past four years of this uh, one term president. Uh, the rhetoric's been harsh. I mean, he's really treated the Europeans uh, and the Canadians. He's, he's been up. Uh, He's been he's treated many of America's allies quite harshly uh, for a long time, decades. He's viewed America's allies as taking advantage of the, of Uncle Sam's largesse and 
you know, these are rich countries, they should do more for themselves. And, and in the NATO case, in 2014, the Allies, this was after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Allies agreed that they should all be spending 2% of their GDP on defense by 2024. And, um, you know, most don't spend 2%. Uh, most aren't going to make that 2%. Uh, and uh, Trump has really rhetorically given them a hard time for that. The spending has gone up uh, in recent years. And really, it's gone up ever since 2014 because of the reaction to what the Russians did in Ukraine. Um, it is the case that some of his former advisors, like former National Security Advisor John Bolton, have said that they believe if Trump had been reelected, he would have taken the United States out of NATO. Uh, but in terms of concrete actions, you know, most of what NATO's been doing in Europe, it would have been doing uh, in a Hillary Clinton administration. It's provided, continued to provide for deterrence and reassurance in Eastern Europe to try to make sure the Russians don't do to any of the NATO members what they did to Ukraine. Um, and probably the most concrete thing he did, he's done that uh, Hillary Clinton would not have done. Uh, and Joe Biden may in fact reverse this is Trump's decision to withdraw uh, some of the troops that are US troops stationed in Germany uh, to take those troops out of Germany. Uh, that that's a concrete thing he's done that another president probably would not have done it, certainly not have done in that way as a punishment for Germany. He, he really has a, he has a terrible relationship with Chancellor Angela Merkel. Um, he, you know, he doesn't seem to like strong women. And so he really doesn't like Angela Merkel, but, uh, she'll have a very different relationship with Joe Biden than she does with Donald Trump. How exactly does Trump's um, criticism and actions towards NATO differ from that of previous presidents? Um, how does he, uh, for instance, his rea uh, relationship with Angela Merkel, and um, how does this compare to past disagreements within NATO, like the Suez Canal incident? Yeah, so there have been past disagreements, and... Um... I mean, the one prior to Trump, the, you know, the biggest one was was the Iraq war in 2003, uh, when you really had uh, a, I mean, the French and Germans were, were highly opposed. The British were in favor uh, of the Iraq war and joined the United States, but it really, it really split the group. And, and the U.S. reaction toward the Allies uh, a lot of congressional unhappiness that the French were opposed to the war. And, you know, the Congress went as far as uh, renaming French fries, freedom fries in the congressional cafeteria. And, uh, and you know, uh, Secretary of Defense, Bush's Secretary, George W. Bush's Secretary of Defense, Don Rumsfeld, uh, talked about old Europe and new Europe and talked about sort of the, the West European allies as sort of old Europe. And it was the East European allies, the new allies who were, he was suggesting were better allies. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great period, but the big difference with respect to Trump is that he consistently treats U.S. allies worse than he treats U.S. adversaries. And in fact, he views allies as adversaries. And 
previous presidents have, I mean, they've had disagreements, but they haven't viewed our U.S. allies as adversaries uh, in, in this way. And, you know, most presidents, and we will see this from Joe Biden after, after he comes into office, they view allies as enhancing America's strength in the world, that having these allies on America's side makes the United States a stronger country. And that is something Donald Trump just doesn't believe. He, he believes that these allies make America weaker. So that's a fundamental disagreement uh, he's had with his previous, with his predecessors. And it will not be something that continues after January 20th. And I'm wondering, you know, why do you think Donald Trump takes this view of allies, which previous presidents, you know, have not taken, you know, viewing them as adversaries? Do you know sort of what the internal logic might be? I mean, obviously, you know, you're not in the mind of, you know, President Donald Trump, but, you know, what do you think his rationale might be for those viewpoints? So this is, this is a view that goes back to the 1980s. In the 1980s, as, as, the, as the Cold War was ending, there was a sense among a number of Americans that the real winners of the Cold War were Germany and Japan. Uh, the United States economy in the George H.W. Bush administration wasn't doing very well. And in fact, that's one of the reasons Bill Clinton won the election of 1992. And there was a sense that Germany and Japan were doing well because they'd been able to focus on their economy while the United States was spending money on defense protecting them. And that seems to have been a view that Donald Trump held, held at the time and never got rid of and just had this idea that these countries were taking advantage of the United States. And, you know, his view was that they were rich and and should have done more and and as i said earlier it's 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 not unusual for presidents to say to europeans come on you guys should be you need to spend more it can't just be us and that's certainly a message that that he's delivered even more forcefully but previous presidents it was really just come on guys you got to do more but they were still seen as on the same team and he just doesn't view them as on the same team. He views it all as very, as all competitive and that, you know, you, you compete with your allies for economic advantage that, that there's, there's really no such thing as a, as friends out there. And uh, he's even called the European union a foe. And uh, that, you know, it's just, it's just a view that he's held, He's held it for decades. And how do you think that, you know, sort of the conflict is, you know, about burden sharing, but as you've described, what makes this conflict over burden sharing different from, you know, previous disagreements about burden sharing is this, you know, different mindset towards, you know, allies as adversaries. Do you think that, you know, this viewpoint makes this conflict over burden sharing on the same level as the, you know, Iraq conflict or other conflicts in terms of, you know, its impact on the unity and potentially longevity of NATO? Well, it's, it's hard to see how NATO would have survived if Donald Trump had been reelected, uh, but he wasn't reelected. And so you have a president coming in who's, com who's committed to the transatlantic relationship. I, 
I think you really we really haven't seen a president this committed to the U.S. Europe relationship since George H. W. Bush left office. Uh, he's got that same degree of belief that the U.S. Europe relationship is important for the United States, and uh, and so I think we will see Joe Biden move to try to put this Trump period behind us all. And the big question is sort of how wary will the Europeans remain about the steadiness of American policy? Because they saw what a president could do after January 2017. And so they'll be happy that Joe Biden's coming in in January 20th of 2021. But how do they know somebody like Trump or even Trump himself won't come back in January of 2025? So I think that's going to be the challenge for the Biden administration is, is convincing everyone that policies that they undertake will outlast the four years coming up. So speaking of the incoming Biden administration, um, we've talked at length about how the mentality of um, President Trump has differed drastically from those of previous presidents and those of president-elect Biden. So how do you think that um, the Biden administration's uh, commitment to the transatlantic relationship will translate into policies toward NATO? And how will those differ from those of President Trump's administration? Well, the biggest difference will be the rhetorical one. and, And he'll remind everyone that allies are important for our common security. I, I think he probably will reverse the planned troop withdrawal for, for you know troops from Germany that Trump had announced earlier this fall. The most interesting question is really going to be how the Biden administration deals with this burden sharing issue because you know NATO sort of put itself in this situation where because the allies agreed that 2% of GDP would be their goal to achieve by 2024, that's where the focus has been. You know, are they or are they not at 2%? And it's not a great way to measure things. Um, you, you know, you sort of want to measure it more based on capability. And also the Europeans do a lot internationally and spend a lot of money uh, on uh, international activity that benefits the alliance and they do a lot of foreign assistance, for example. And I, I think they would like to see a different way of measuring commitment to national security sort of beyond just defense spending. And it'll be interesting to see whether the American population wants to see a different way of thinking about these things. You know, COVID has had a big impact on all of us, of course. And how will we, how will we, how will the Europeans, how will all of us view what national security spending is all about? I mean, you know, COVID has killed more than 200,000 Americans. And, you know, by the time this is over, you know, could be between three and 400,000 Americans dead from from COVID-19. So... That's a national security threat. And we, you know, that's not something, that's, that's not really a NATO issue. 
So I think it'll be really interesting to see how the Biden team working with the Europeans and working with their domestic audiences think about how to how to think about security and, and what we spend and where we spend it. And you've touched on this, I think, you know, throughout this conversation, the question surrounding NATO's future between, you know, the nature of defense spending itself, between the credibility potentially of American leadership and American presidents within NATO. And I'm wondering if you could distill it to what are the main questions that a Biden administration will have to face concerning the future of NATO? You know, what would those main questions that he would have to, you know, what would be those main questions that he would have to tackle, including, you know, potentially the purpose of NATO itself? Yes, yeah, great question, as are all of these. Uh, the, um, you know, and we've talked about sort of how do we, how, how will the U.S. be a leader going forward? What will U.S. leadership mean? How will we think about burden sharing? I think probably the other big issue for NATO is going to be how does NATO fit into the overall U.S.-European effort to manage the rise of China? It's, it's not obvious what role NATO will play. Uh, NATO was put for the first time on the agenda of the heads of state and government in December of 2019, so just about a year ago. And NATO's been talking more and more about China. And of course, the Europeans and the Americans and the Canadians are all more and more concerned about China. And we don't have a common position. And, and you know, I don't expect NATO as a military alliance to be doing things in the Pacific. But I think NATO will become an important forum for discussion. And NATO-European Union relations will be very important as will U.S.-European Union relations. So I, I think that's really a big, that's really a big question is, is how will NATO actually play a role in, uh, as the U.S. and Europe seek to manage the rise of China? With the changing, you know, geopolitics, economics, international relations, just sort of everything that NATO has to deal with in the world, how do you think that the incoming, the incoming Biden administration's policies will shape this future direction of NATO. And that can sort of apply to, I mean, a lot of things. Um, what will sort of, what will NATO focus itself on next? Will it be China, as you've been talking about? Will it be Russia? Will it be something else? What will be NATO's main focuses in the future? And how will the Biden administration direct policy toward those initiatives? One of the things that NATO does periodically is it puts together something called a strategic concept. So this is a document that basically lays out the NATO purpose. And, you know, it's evolved over time. And the last strategic concept was put out in 2010. So prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, prior to COVID-19, prior to the real alarm about China's rise and what it might mean and China's uh, advances in technology. And so I think we will see the Biden administration pushing for a new strategic concept, and that will be the chance to really articulate what, the, what NATO's purpose is. Uh, and how the allies view their common security. 
it's a lot harder than it used to be. 30 members is a lot. US, Canada, 28 European members, that's a lot of countries. And those countries are all very different. You know, we have the US and Canada and North America. We've got the British who are leaving the European Union. We have the other Western European countries, uh, traditional Southern European countries. There's Turkey. There's the countries in the Western Balkans. You've got Croatia and Albania and North Macedonia, Montenegro. You've got the countries of Central Europe, like Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. You've got the countries further to the east, like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, and so lots of different, different kinds of countries with different security needs. And so coming up with a, with a strategic concept that everybody can agree to is going to be quite the challenge. And I think that's, you know, that's where the team, the Biden team will, will, will likely focus its attention to try to, to try to push NATO to come up with something to, to lay out these issues and really define what the purpose is going forward in the, in the 2020s. And I'd like to deep dive into some of the, you know, maybe there, maybe there are divisions of the different perspectives within NATO, within, between the NATO members concerning NATO's future direction. Um, could you briefly describe sort of what those different perspectives might be if there are different groups within NATO that have their own perspectives or security needs or security goals, what do you think the different interests at play are in determining the future direction? Well, a big one, for example, is how to deal with Russia. And, and you know, we've seen Russian aggression. Uh, we saw it uh, most notably in Ukraine in 2014. Of course, Russia had also gone to war with Georgia in 2008. Uh, those are not NATO members. So that's, you know, that's different than uh, if Russia had done something like that to a NATO member, and I don't think Russia would because of the response that would happen. But, but for the countries that are the, the Eastern members, uh, newer, newer Eastern members, especially Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the three Baltic countries, I mean, they see the main threat as coming from Russia, and they want to know that NATO is there to protect them. And Poland has been very supportive of that as well. They also view Russia as the primary threat. Um, but, you know, if you're in France or you're in Spain or you're in Italy, you're, you're just, you're not worried about that to the same, to the same extent. And so I think that what we're going to see is a, a real effort to try to figure out how to how to forge common ground. Russia's going to be the the toughest one. We've seen Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, has uh, has argued over the last year or so that there needs to be an effort to reach out to Russia and create a better relationship with Russia. Of course, Trump, you know, it was very contradictory within his administration because he never said anything bad about Vladimir Putin and he 
seem to want to have a better relationship with Putin. But of course, because of the Russian interference in 2016 and the and the Mueller report, the there were questions raised about every time Trump sort of reached out to Putin, you know, the talk about he was Putin's puppet. And so, um, uh, but meanwhile, sanctions have remained in place and, and there's been a very tough uh, policy and practice toward Russia. And, and we've also seen uh, assistance to Ukraine and, and so on. So uh, it would be a big question as, as the new administration comes in, sort of what kind of stance they want to take vis-a-vis -vis Russia. They'll, they'll want to pursue arms control with Russia, which Trump has abandoned. Uh, but beyond that, sort of how do they view Vladimir Putin as a possible partner? Uh, he has not proven to be a very good partner for the United States, so uh, there'll be a lot of skepticism. But, you know, for the, for the East European countries, they, want to, they still want to keep NATO's focus on Russia as, as, you know, it was at its founding. And for the other countries that threat is not as important. And so they want to sort of see NATO deal with other, with other sets of issues. And, and I think that'll be the, that's that issue of how much Russia is still the focus of NATO, I think will continue to be a big dividing line uh, within the countries, within, within the NATO countries. You also mentioned China as potentially an emerging focus within NATO, or at least the question of how NATO might approach China. Um, you know, I'm sure the U.S. takes a potentially more confrontational um, perspective towards China, but maybe some of the Eastern European countries, which might receive you know, economic support from China, perhaps they would be less supportive of taking a confrontational approach towards China. Um, you know, would you please like, break down how different member states in NATO view China and what the main dynamic is within NATO surrounding the China question? Yeah, it's really interesting and it's changing because, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of differences within Europe over China. And the United States, I mean, in the United States now in Washington, I mean, there's a really strong bipartisan consensus that China's a threat and the United States needs to gear up for the China threat. So, you know, we don't see huge amounts of bipartisanship in, in Washington, but there's definitely a bipartisan consensus about China. It's also worth noting there is a bipartisan consensus on the importance of NATO. I think that uh, regardless of who holds the Senate after the Georgia Senate elections, the the Congress is still very supportive on a bipartisan basis of NATO, as is the American public in public opinion polls. Uh, within Europe, uh, it, there's been a lot of difference. Um, uh, Chancellor Merkel in Germany had previously been more, uh, you know, sort of taken a softer line toward China and, of course, welcomed China, China, Chinese investments. But um, the German political establishment has grown more concerned about China and, and there'll be elections in Germany uh, next year uh, in 2021. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of how German attitudes toward China emerge. There's a grouping known as the 17 plus one, sort of mainly Eastern European countries and China. Uh, and there you see also a lot of um, 
uh, Chinese investments in uh, in Eastern Europe. Italy uh, announced sometime back that it was going to join the Belt and Road Initiative, China's main global initiative. So, uh, so there is a real difference of opinion, and and that's why it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But NATO did at its heads of state and government summit uh, or meeting last December, December 2019, did put China on the agenda uh, as a, as an issue that, that NATO would have to deal with. And so I, I think we will continue to see those conversations going forward, but it's going to be really challenging. China's not the Soviet Union. You know, when NATO was formed, as we, as we started this conversation with, the West European countries were worried about a Soviet invasion. Uh, and, you know, the NATO members are not worried about China invading them. Uh, also, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and its and its its partner countries, its its client states, I mean, they formed sort of a separate economy in the world, and they weren't integrated into the global economy. The China's integrated into the global economy, and you've got major Chinese investments in the West. So, it's a very different situation than the Cold War, and and China is also a country. I mean, for the United States and for the Europeans. We have to cooperate with China. We, I mean, we have a, 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 you know, trade disputes and we have concerns about Chinese activities, human rights violations, surveillance. But if we're going to deal with climate change, we're going to have to cooperate with China. Uh, if we're going to deal with future pandemics, we're going to have to cooperate with China. Not nuclear nonproliferation. So, so it's a competitive relationship, but there will also need to be... M- ways that we find to cooperate with China. And so it's going to be very complex and it's going to be very interesting to see how NATO manages that. Um, So speaking of other challenges to NATO, um, we've seen a rise in populism in many member states of NATO and within Europe in general. Um, For example, in Turkey, Hungary, and Poland, we've seen um, a rise in populist attitudes and political figures and parties. So how does this rise in populism and often correspondingly more of a attitude of protectionism or focus on within a country rather than um, rather than a focus on international cooperation? How do you think that will shape the future of NATO um, going forward? Well, yeah, I would put it in the context really of of the importance of democracy as an organizing theme of NATO countries uh, and the respect for the rule of law. This was in the original 1949 Washington Treaty. There certainly have been countries that have, you know, not been democratic at, at points in history uh, and uh, Portugal, uh, which was there from the start. Uh, was not democratic. And, you know, Turkey and Greece had their moments. Uh, And then, I mean, the issue is once a country is in, you can't kick it out. Uh, Alliance operates by consensus. So whereas democracy was was hugely important, uh, commitment to democracy, hugely important for countries like Poland and Hungary to get into NATO, uh, they don't have to continue that commitment. Now, uh, because, I mean, they can't get kicked out, but still, you know, it does create challenges within the alliance. I think that the big change coming up 
Um, I mean, we've just gone through an American administration where the president himself was not committed to democracy. And so whatever democratic backsliding there's been in places like Hungary and Poland, um, you know, Turkey, uh, you, you know, you've seen uh, authoritarianism emerge in, in Turkey and Hungary. I mean, those pale in comparison to the rise of authoritarianism in the United States. And so, you know, had that become full blown, especially in a second Trump term, had Donald Trump been able to overturn the results of, a, of an election where, you know, Joe Biden won the election, popular vote and electoral college. And and we've been subject to discussions in recent weeks about efforts to overturn the will of the people. And I mean, that that would have. I mean, in addition to being terrible for the United States, it would have been in our democracy that would have had a terrible effect on NATO as an alliance that's built around democracy and the rule of law. So I think the restoration of American democracy, which there's a lot of work to be done in the Biden years to to do that, the effort to address systemic racism in the United States, which is important for the United States as a democracy and as a leader in the world. And and then the ability of a, of a United States that's recommitted to democracy to be able to then deal with countries like Poland and Hungary in a bilateral way, because I think that's how it's going to be done, to try to put pressure on them uh, to, to ease up uh, and to restore democratic rights. Turkey is going to be very, very difficult. And that relationship is going to be one that will vex the Biden team and uh, will become increasingly important. But step one was was uh, having a U.S. president committed to democracy. And then, you know, hopefully after January 20th, uh, strengthening democracy once again in the United States. Well, NATO has been just such an important institution and international affairs and American foreign policy. And there are so many, you know, intense questions surrounding NATO's future, both inside and out. So thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast to, you know, explain some of those questions for us. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and to the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.